Welcome to Ramble City. Hi, this is Alan Clark from Dire Straits and lots of other people. And uh, you're listening to Bradley McCall on Ramble City. That is perfection, and I'm going to make that my ringtone. Alan, thanks so much. It's been a real treat. Welcome back to Ramble City and part two of our Ramble Chat with award-winning musician, composer, producer, one Alan Clark from Dire Straits, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and so many more things. In fact, if you haven't heard the first part of this chat, I highly recommend you go back and, and start at the beginning of this whole story. No cheating, please. And to those who have listened to that, well, welcome back. It's good to see you. We pick up things digging into the classic 1985 Dire Straits album, Brothers in Arms. Now, if you don't know anything about this album, let me set the table for you. It spent 14 weeks at number one in the UK, nine weeks at number one in the US, 34 weeks at number one in the Australian charts. It became eventually the eighth best-selling album in UK chart history and sold more than 30 million copies worldwide. So needless to say, I couldn't wait to dig in and discover every little detail I could about the recording process, the writing, any crumb that Alan was willing to talk about. And he shared so many great stories from this process behind the scenes about how they came up with 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 some of the tracks and he even actually explained how Mark Knopfler came up with that iconic guitar sound on Money for Nothing but I won't ruin that story let's just get into it you can hear it for yourselves this is part two with Alan Clark I'm Bradley McCaw and this is still Ramble City welcome to Ramble City all right, so let's set the scene. It's um, October 1984. You've obviously rehearsed all this material, um, as you've just outlined to us, and then you get on a plane to travel to the Caribbean, which you've already spent a bit of time in on a cruise ship or traveling around in a cruise ship, and you get set to to make what would be this... Um, hugely successful album, Brothers in Arms. Talk, talk us through kind of those those early times. Do you remember the plane trip over? Do I remember the plane trip over? No. <laughs> Is it in there? Can I give you a moment just to go look it up? Is that? Uh, well, it was a British Airways first-class flight to Antigua, and then... Um, just as I thought, high-profile journalism here. No one's ever got that out of you, Alan. I'm pretty proud about that. <laughs> And then, and then a small plane across to um, Caribbean Airways or whatever it was, across to uh, the tiny little uh, uh, airport in in Montserrat, which is basically a hut with a runway. Yeah, get out. Oh, it was. I don't know where it is now. And uh, yeah, and so I remember it was um, the first week was the, the, there'd been a, um, a hurricane, I think, near uh, sort of somewhere, and the, so it was the weather was really bad for a week, and the the, the the big storms and the beach got washed away and that kind of thing. But then after a week, the sun came out and it was glorious. And so you spend um, what is it, four or five months there working on this album? Uh, just un- I think just under three, okay. two and a half. Yeah, yeah. But the first month. The first month we, we, we spent, a, I think, yeah, a month, three weeks to a month um, 
building do, building tracks up um and the digital recording machine which we uh we were pioneering uh, yeah really, so let's the, yeah let's talk about that so brothers in arms was the first one of the first albums to be recorded on a sony 24 track digital tape machine so for anyone that doesn't know how is this is this significant like what was the digital tape machine compared to what everyone else had been using at the time well, it didn't. Um, everything else was done on a on a Revox um, tape, tape, like a three inch tape. Yeah. And, um, and one of the disadvantages of th- of three inch tape is um, is you get hiss, you get you get a hiss which you have to deal with yeah. from tape, and every time you run the tape through the th- through the heads of the of the of the machine, whether it's whether it's playing it back or recording, it it damages the tape to a certain degree, right? Because the tape is rubbing against the, the heads of a of a the, the recording heads of the machine, and um, so you get degeneration in 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 the sound basically. So um, if you could if you could record an album in one take and then master it, then you would have a fantastic result on on um, on um, a tape machine, but the the great advantage, one of the great advantages of, of digital, is that you don't get the degeneration. You get a a bigger uh, wave band, so the the actual sound is is clearer and and bigger. But the disadvantage that we found was after a month of recording on the on this uh, early digital recording machine it wiped everything and we had to start again no way yeah yeah so how far into the process were you by then was it a couple of tracks or was it more than that I, well, we were kind of we were kind of struggling a bit anyway i mean i can't remember how much we we'd done but um in some ways it was it was um it gave us a kick up the backside really because we we then um we then I, I, I said was I suggested that we get in Omar Hakim, the the drummer. Yeah. Um who I'd I'd heard uh, a few weeks before or yeah, a month or so or a couple of months before, um I'd heard him playing I was in the power station, the rec- uh, um recording studio in New York, and I'd heard Omar Hakim playing on the Let's Dance album by David Bowie. And so he and he continued to play on the whole record, did he? Or so we we long story short, we got Omar Hakim down into Montserrat, and he for a, I think for a week or a few days, and he played on the entire record. He played it. He played every track. I think he played every track in that well, week. I think we might. Have... Yeah, all the beds in the way. Played most of the album. Yeah. So and 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 most of the time it was. Um, uh, and uh, certainly on on some of the tracks, it was just me and him putting the the basic tracks down. For instance, on "Ride Across the River," it was just me playing do 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 and and Omar playing the groove, and so we play the whole tune, and that was the bed of the track that was built up thereafter. Get out. And it was the same uh, with "Why Worry," with the, the song "Why Worry." I remember that being one of the ones where he and I just played the entire thing. By, by ourselves I think Brothers in Arms 
I seem to recall putting that down on a DX7, playing playing the basic keyboard organ part yeah. on a DX7, um, probably with John Ilsley, Omar, maybe with the rest of the band. I can't remember. Um, but uh, it was kind of built up from scratch like that, basically. Were you playing like pseudo bass parts or were you just sort of playing pads? No, I would play the whatever. Whatever your part was, essentially. Yeah, for instance, in uh, in Why Worry, it's it's the electric piano part. Yeah. Uh, it's like ding, 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 and all that. And yeah. So the, the whole song is based around that. You know, it, it, it could be a, you could take the guitars off and it would still kind of work. Yeah, because yeah. The, the structure of the of the song is is the piano part, the electric piano part, um, and right across the river, the rhythmic part that that I played on the it was a GS one synthesizer, which was that the, what the first thing you hear do 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 do, so that that was the the became the foundation of the um, of the track. So if we look at the the track list here. Um, so kicking off with So Far Away, um, which is now listed as the full version on the Spotify version that's on here. Do you know why it says that now? Is it because maybe there was a, there used to be a radio edit or something like that that was? Uh, I think it's the, the, it's probably the, um, the play out, which was my idea. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God, guys, I'm not just setting Alan up for this. It's just the truth. (laughs) No, it's, us uh, keyboard well, players have to stick together, Alan. Yeah, yeah. If if if, if any any Dire Straits songs go on long, more than more than fifteen seconds after the vocal stops, it's my fault. <laughs> and, and, and likewise, before the vocal starts. Um, yeah, so uh, there is a long a long play out, um, which is basically the, that that riff again d d d d d d d and then the, there's a chord change and a bass note and then and then it starts again and then it and then this entire other sequence da 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 starts playing and mark plays along the top yeah so i think uh, i think it was faded out for for the for the, for a single version yeah right maybe if it was a single and so but, even um, with that yeah. one you were talking about earlier that this stuff would be rehearsed before you came over but when you got to making this album that there was this first week maybe this wasn't working or things weren't cooking and was was this one kind of all your parts kind of fully formed or again were you kind of there's a lot of layers in what you've done on this record or there's a, there's a, there's so much happening in you know you sort of reference money for nothing but even so far away there's a lot of delicate little things that come in i think was it so far away that there's really late in it i was cuz i was listening last night i have a a passion where i just put on a record i'll just jam along and sort of just like try and catch parts and if i've listened to it enough times i'll start to sort of catch sort of sort of things but i i thought i heard like a a low clav like coming in right near the end that just all of a sudden just comes in just like just these low sort of notes down near the end i don't know if that's what it was or whether it was um, something and maybe it was money for nothing because there's a lot on that. But the question here is, did you spend a lot of time just layering and and it's almost like you were thinking about it orchestrally, like you were talking about with the Hammond organ previously. You know, a lot of different textures and rhythms and parts. Yeah, I mean, you would just you would kind of um, have the basic. The basic keyboard, whatever the first keyboard part that I played, would be the 
would be the basic essence of the of the track and then and then you could start then I'd start getting ideas as I'm listening to the track and maybe Marks were recording his guitar or whatever then I'd get a, more uh, ideas I'd say hey I've got an idea let me try this yeah right sometimes it works sometimes it's doesn't but uh, if it's if it if it sticks then it sort of ends up being there you know eventually it's kind of like yeah we need that don't we is that kind of yeah yeah we lose something if we if we if we snip the tape or or delete as the case was with the uh with the sony 24 digital so what about money for nothing then you talked about that whole intro um there is so much going on in that can you remember working on that can you remember any process about that or any story that you can tell us about all the stuff that's going in on it before we went to Montserrat, we were rehearsing in, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the place now. It was a, it was a, a, like a, a studio, um, Chessington. We were in, rehearsing in, a, in a, a studio place in Chessington. That was kind of a live-in studio. Right. And um, I think we were there for like three weeks maybe. And Money for Nothing when when Mark started first playing that, it was he hadn't developed that iconic riff. Right. It was playing something completely different, or must have been kind of in the same vein. But what is um, something less Hal licky Lind- and more chordal, perhaps? Or yeah, Hal Lindus has a cassette. Hal Lindus recorded it. I think we all did, but um, so we could go back at night and listen and and check it out so but how linda still has a cassette apparently of of the first early recordings of the uh, first versions of that wow which she says sounds a bit like a rolling stones track right at the time yeah yeah but what happened is mark developed that that lick and um but during during those rehearsals in um in chessington um during a break in the rehearsals i started messing around again and i started playing that um I'll put my piano on so you can you can uh, come in up. Give me a second. This, this, yeah, this is a treat. So I I started playing this. Uh, I just started playing, and then I started singing. Um, I, I I basically I was aware of I was aware of um, MTV. Because uh, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in in, in the states, and uh, MTV when MTV start, first started their first first appeared on on the airwaves, they were using the phrase um, "I want my MTV." That was their big their big thing. But by 1984, they'd they'd moved on. They they weren't using that. But um, it was still sort of going around in my mind. So I started singing to myself in a break in rehearsals when everybody else was playing snooker or something, I started singing, I want my MTV, I want my MTV. And then, and then I went to, and then, and then I thought, "Mm, I want my MTV, I want my, and, and, and then, and then it was, then it became, I want my MTV. And of course, the melody that I was singing didn't work so well over all of those chords. So I started modifying it. But then when Mark 
Mark heard it. He he said, "Just just do the first the first ones. I want my MTV." And stop there, and then we change the chord and so on, and uh, that's how it came about. And then we realised that it was actually what 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 it developed was stings. Um, don't stand so close to me. Yeah, <laughs> the melody from that. We'd snuck in the back door. Yeah, and ended up. We'd ended up with that. Now. By coincidence, who's on holiday in Montserrat when we get when we get to Montserrat? But Sting, Sting appears and comes up to the studio, says hello, and it's like, hey, would you do you fancy singing um, the intro for this song? And of course, once he started singing it, it was turned into his melody, yeah, and which is why he has a credit on the on the song. Amazing, amazing. There's no, there's, there's nothing I can say that can compare to this story, Alan. That's amazing. Did you say to him when you were pitching it to him? Did you say, "Don't worry, you don't have to learn it because you already know it." (laughs) (laughs) So how did you kind of? Yeah, go on. Sorry. No, I think the only thing that he that, that, that he changed was I want my MTV. He sang that, you know, he, he changed that up to the end, which was perfect as well. So, if I'm hoping everyone has gone back and sort of, you know, done as I did last night and just kind of let you know, these albums wash over you again and just really enjoy them. The intro of Money for Nothing, I can't remember how long it sort of goes, but there's, so there's those chords and then there's the string stuff building and then there's kind of some some guitar and then there's that clav that comes in that's like playing that and it sort of pushes to kind of this. That's my DX7. Right. And it just pushes to like the. And then it starts to go totally up the scale, and I start messing around with the uh, the, the tuning thing. Yeah, the, the bender, yeah. So, did you? Here's my question. Here's, here's my hard hitting journalism about this, okay? Did you, when you were making this one, at what point did you guys, if you can remember, when did it become this conversation about, oh, let's kind of just keep pulling this until it kind of explodes? When did that happen? Was it a certain lick that you were playing or something? Was it that you just kind of were playing that and you went, oh, yeah, let's push it all? Or or did it become very clear very quickly that that's what it needed? How do you mean? Do you mean like the intro explodes? Yeah, yeah. It kind of like it starts and then it slowly, you know, I want my MTV. And then, you know, when it keeps pushing and pushing and biggie and then all of a sudden it it, it disappears to reveal that lick, you know. That was in the rehearsals, yeah. Yeah, right. Because Terry Williams was was doing all of that in the rehearsals. He's splashing on those cymbals. And the do 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 Exactly. And it ended up with Terry... um, ended up that was the only thing he played on the record really yeah because he we recorded that we recorded that 
part of the track, the intro, um, separately to everything else. Yeah. And and then we got and then we got Omar Hakim in after that. Long story, but Omar Hakim came in and played the song. Yeah. And then we we, we stuck we, we we stuck it together. But the guitar riff, and here's a here's a good story. The guitar riff, Mark was developing the guitar riff from the rehearsals, which, as I said, sounded apparently like a Rolling Stones, more like a Rolling Stones type of lick when he first started playing the song. Yeah. In Montserrat, he by then he'd started playing around with it a lot more. And one evening after dinner, I think it was, we were in the studio and Mark was playing playing the guitar lick and. And he'd um, he'd been playing, experimenting with a wow wow pedal, a, a, a copycat. Yeah. And um, I think he'd been playing right before dinner. Then we went and had dinner, and he came back and started playing it again. And he left the co- the copycat halfway on and, and halfway off, sort of. That's just by coincidence. So when he started playing the guitar, he had suddenly the the sound was perfect. So he got hi hat. He got the engineer to get, to put a hi hat click of the tempo of the song, and he and he started playing the lick with this sound, and um, and actually recorded the actual actual intro that you hear on the on the song, the actual guitar lick. He recorded that guitar lick. Um, did he record the entire song? Perhaps he did, uh, but but by himself to a to, to a, a click. click. Because he had the sound and, he, and it was like, yeah, let's capture this sound now. I don't know how we got there, but don't, don't stop. <laughs> don't stop. Yeah. So he and, and as he was playing that, it was like people say, "Do you know when a song is going to be a hit record?" And and the answer is no. But right there, here in that lick, I thought this is going to be one of the great iconic guitar licks of all time. Yeah, it does feel like that as soon as you hear it, doesn't it? Like it's, yeah. I mean, and I wasn't there. Uh, it's amazing because you know I wondered listening to it in the in the section where the we get before the third verse. There's that section where Mark doesn't sing again, and then Sting's backing vocal feels like a lead vocal for a moment. And I was listening to that yes. sort of today in the car, singing along. You know, starting to do my Sting impression, which is uh, pretty bad, and. I, I wondered to myself, geez, I wonder if how that form came about. That's a really cool choice that, you know, it's just the the, the backing vocal or, or a sting feature or whatever the logic is. But I wonder now hearing this story if it was he laid it down on click and he just played it that way and it's like, well, let's just, you know, let's keep rolling, you know? That's pretty much it, yeah. And then we built the track around it. Incredible. What magic. Okay, the next song I want to ask you about, if I may, Alan, is the song that I think every keyboard player that has ever played in a covers band at some point has played. Um, Walk of Life. Yep. Did this become uh, one of those songs that you refused to play because you just have to play it? You had to play it so much? Uh, that was a joke for anyone that sounded like I was too dry there. <laughs> I M- Mark wrote the song with and and with that with that with that lick with that. No way! That, yeah, yeah. Wow. So that was that was 
in his mind that was the intro so wow. one of the rare one of the rare occasions when he had that concept yeah so i refu- i did refuse to play it i said i'm not playing that yeah because because it's my part yeah this is so my guy this is my moment yeah guy fletcher the, the other keyboard player he he took that part so I, I played the uh, the Hammond Hammond organ on that, which is the first thing you hear. Yeah, yeah. because so the breakdown, yeah, because so. yeah, the breakdown on it is, I was trying to sort of pick it apart last night on a couple of listens, like where. Because I always so that's not a Hammond sound on that front. I thought it was a Hammond that. It's two different synths. Yeah, it's right. A, a, it would be the um, synclavier, I think. Get out. And so he would have then he would have put the the um, the harmony on himself then because it breaks into those two parts there. Wow. Yeah, Mark. It was Mark's concept the entire thing the 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 melody and the and the harmony underneath. So uh, and they were put down separately, obviously, on two different sounds. And the concept of that of that of that um, of that little melody is is. Um, when we, when when Mark and I grew up in the north of northeast of England, and when you would go to a fairground, that you would have a um, traction engine rallies, traction engines, and, and, and a big steam, a steam uh, organ, which is like a great big, like a um, like a trailer from a uh, from a railway or almost with a with a an organ that plays from steam, I guess. I right. mean, so you get this. This amazing, amazing sound. There's loads of pipes and things. You must, have, you, you'll have seen them. Yeah. And uh, driven by, are they electric or steam? I can't remember, but um, they were an integral part of like a, a fantastic sound. And and we were trying to get the sound of that's Mark's concept of that um, of that melody for for Walk of Life was 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 that was coming from that sound. So um, he was trying to portray that really. Yeah. It's not obvious sounds that come out. But. No, but it but it is a little bit too because it is fairgroundy, isn't it? Like it has that be, that sort of atmosphere of of a playground or a, yeah. a circus or you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about how then successful the album was. I read somewhere that um, the 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 initial reviews very early were not particularly kind i don't know if that was there was a magnitude of those but i i saw that there was one particularly that was sort of saying uh this is not very good was it was it was it very quick that that turned around or was it that of those type of reviews in the beginning of in the minority i don't know I, i didn't really look at any reviews um i wasn't really aware of it of what was going on really i mean uh, the, the the strange thing is when you when you're kind of um involved in 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 a band like that and we were on monster in montserrat so no kind of i didn't watch any tv at all when i was in montserrat even though you could pick up some american stations and things um and then when i came home i'd just be um doing something else for a while and then we'd go off and uh, we'd start rehearsing and um so you're kind of uh, kind of insular so even though there's all this stuff going on the album goes to number one around the world and everything and we we were out there basically uh playing gigs every night and different and so you kind of get focused on that and, yeah uh, you, you, you're kind of aware of what's going on but it's not the same as 
your awareness or everybody else's awareness of of the album yeah that's right so, i can i can see because there's a sense of i guess that's how you continue making great music because it's the 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 kind of the the hubbub is probably for everybody else i mean you've made the record you guys had made the record now you play it and then you get on to do the next one and the last thing i wanted to listen to was brothers in arms yeah you know it took me 20 years or so to listen to that album really um yeah, because when you when you make a record, like I say, you you, uh, I mean, the, when you make a record, you've heard you, you've heard I'd heard that that record in in bits and and then eventually the the final mix and it was like you just don't want to hear it with make with that one particularly or with any of them. Was there so? We've just finished making a record for me myself, and I'm not putting it in a, any sort of similar museum. Mine's playing a canteen compared to <clears throat> compared to what we're talking about. But there was this there was this point and this feeling where you very much knew that this song was done, and there was this feeling that you'd kind of ridden this thing to the end, and you'd caught whatever it was, and you'd followed through on whatever that was, and you're right. At that point, I was very happy to never hear it again. Did, did, did you always find that you've reached that point on, on all the different material that you've, that you've done, that you always got this sense of, yeah, that's it. And we got there and we got the things we needed or was, was it a different kind of process in making records for you? Um, with Dire Straits, then I was involved, obviously, from the beginning right through to the end of the, of the recording process. So that's a long time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you definitely pretty much don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> Everybody else wants to, except except me. So, um, but with other other people, I mean, sometimes I, I, I can go in, 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 in and out of the studio in... Um, you know, I, I did an album recently with uh, for for Jerry Rafferty, who God bless him died ten years ago. Yeah. But I, I, I he's he has an album coming out this year, which has been put together from outtakes and st- and and songs which didn't make other albums. So I played on I played on seven tracks in a day. Yeah. Uh, and um, I couldn't tell you what I played. Basically, it's just it was just bam, played it once or twice and each track and and um so i'm looking forward to hearing that because i didn't have it i didn't hear it enough times to sicken myself of it if you see what i mean how many times i've heard a lot of guys from from that time which is the faculty of what was used to create these records was just like i always have this theory when i'm playing along to your guys' records from the 70s and, and 80s and, and the 60s and I guess in, and the 90s. Like, it's like playing this one chord, the years and the immense ability that goes into locking that one chord in that one moment in that one place. And um, I kind of just lost my sort of train of thought there. But what were you just talking about before that? Sorry, Alan, I just kind of got lost. I just sort of started thinking about my hands. Um, in terms of, oh, sorry, in terms of sort of, you know, 
playing this material. How often I've, I've heard of guys saying then they go back to these records and they have to relearn these records to then go out and play them on the road. But you guys obviously yeah. rehearsed a lot of material before you sort of went in. So it's kind of slightly different, I guess. Yeah. By then, with, with all the Dire Straits stuff, um, it was like cast in stone by the time we got to rehearsals. Yeah. What, 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 what was recorded was was what I call cast in stone, basically. Yeah. It, it just had to be that way, and then and then it would be modified thereafter, and explored upon through, like touring and, and improvising or things like that. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. All right, well, I think you've humoured me long enough um, on this, as I keep wanting to ask persistent questions about just one of my favourite records. So, thank you, Alan, for sort of letting me share a little bit of history with you about it. I really do appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then I'm going to come back and ask you just about touring and and these acts that you toured with at the height of their fames and then Live Aid. So you've played with so many different acts throughout your career, different lineups, um, as we talked about Dice Straits, of course, um, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner, as I said. I'd love to talk about the the life of kind of a, a touring keyboard player and and traveling with some of what were the biggest acts at, at, at the height of their time. How did sort of touring with these guys differ in all these different acts and what sort of different uniforms did you kind of have to wear as a keyboard player between Dire Straits, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner? How did that work? Uniforms as in... Um, the costumes what? no I'm joking in terms of uh, how how you kind of approached it or, or or did that change or was it just turning up to work and playing what the song needed um, it's always it's always that basically it's always um, it's always finding finding what makes me happy basically and if it makes me happy then then presumably it's going to make everybody else happy basically yeah that's that's the best way of putting it when i when i first started playing um with with tina turner tina invited me after after the after recording um a couple of tracks on or or the track um private dancer and 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 another one that i recorded the next day um uh, she invited me to tour with her in in america which was a, a supporting tour. She was supporting Lyle Ritchie and promoting her private dancer record. Yeah. So we got to, um, I got to Los Angeles and rehearsed with the band. And, um, and that was a, that was a diff, uh, it was a brand new, a different band entirely. And they, they kind of did, were doing, you know, they, they'd been used to doing things. I mean, Tina, Tina at the time was playing in like, uh, holiday inns and stuff like ca- almost cabaret scenario before that really so the band that she had together yeah the band that she had together were um were kind of coming from that direction yeah so but um what but, does that uh, mean so for anyone that doesn't know alan what does that you mean the style in which they was it is that musicality is that what does that mean um 
they might have been a bit less. Um, this is not. This is probably unfair, but maybe they weren't as uh, as meticulous. Yeah, it was. It was just kind of just jamming out and kind of creating a bit of an atmosphere, as opposed to maybe yes anything too intricate. Is that a fair assessment? Probably playing things too fast and and various other stuff. So, which is needed in so clubs, I, right? To keep people's attention. Sometimes it's like let's just speed yeah. it up. Yeah. Well, t- Tina, Tina's quite prone to doing that on stage. Right, like, right. Pick it up, pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so it took a it took a few days to um, to find out what was going to work. But again, I, as soon as uh, as soon as um, so, uh, basically, once I found the way for me to play the song, yeah. Then it was. Then the rest of it became. Then, then the whole thing would be based around that, and then, and that's how. That's kind of how I. Um, so, what things did you look I've for? Do you remember? Away. Like, what? What were the little light bulbs? Was it? Rhythmic, or was it, it was just tone, or is it? space or was it just the parts the parts you know um remember that prince song um what's that prince song that goes um um oh, tina, uh, uh, tina recorded that and um Hang on. I just i just remember finding uh i started playing that lick on the on a uh on a Profit synthesizer, and then and then I found a, a Hammond part, and and um, I think so. I changed the arrangement to make it work with that band, sort of. Yeah, and uh, it, it turned out very well. I think um, Prince turned up at one of the gigs, and I think he was quite happy with it, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's always nice. Yeah. So then, how did that differ then? Say. You, you record um, another one of my favorite records, like, you know, when, when you do your list or someone asks you about it. Journeyman has been one I've talked about for a long time. It's a record that really turned me on to a lot of stuff as a musician. And it's, um, to me, I used to talk about it as like a blues record, even though there's a lot of like 80s rock on it, you know, but to me it was Hound Dog and it was, you know, you know well, uh, Hard Times that kind of really hooked me into some of those songs again after, you know, kind of hearing the Elvis and the Ray Charles for a time, but then hearing these again, I was like, oh yeah, these kind of, these songs are cool. Let me get back into this or whatever. So it kind of had a special place in my heart, that that record. So you guys record that, um, what year was that? Was that sort of 87 or 84? It's around, it's sort of uh, 80, 89? 87, 88, I would think, around that sort of time, yeah. So you guys record that, and then you you are a part of his band for for a couple of years um, out on the road. How, how did that compare to to for to Tina Turner, and in terms of the uniform, or in terms of you know being a part of that that as a keyboard player? Well, the great thing about that band is, uh, first of all, every every component that in, component in that band were absolutely magnificent. Nathan East on bass. Boom. Greg Fillingaines, the other keyboard player. Boom. Fabulous. Just dropping legends uh, from your wallet, just like one Ray by Cooper one. Ray Cooper on percussion. Oh, Steve Ferroni on drums. I mean, 
I met Steve w- 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 the first rehearsal with with Eric, and I remember after the first song, I walked across and kissed him on the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to say anything; I just kissed him on the forehead and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, Steve's Steve's the actually the godfather of my children now. He's a good friend. Oh yeah, wow! Has been since. Yeah, wow. And so. Uh, Playing with Eric was just an absolute joy. It was, um, we were like, a, when we were going across America, we did two back-to-back American tours and various other places, but I just remember the American ones. It was like, we were like a conquering army, basically. Yeah. Everywhere we went, it was just, the first song would completely blow the audience. The audience would go absolutely nuts and stay and stay that way for the entire thing. It was uh it was fabulous. Did you guys in that time, I've always been curious with, with, I guess that record and then how you might've toured it. Was it, was a lot of, was it a lot of jam kind of jamming live? Were there really specific charts that you played to or was it well, the, just the sort of keep your eyes on charts, Eric, you know? Yeah, we, we, we did, we did a fair bit of rehearsing. Uh, we did like a couple of weeks or a, with every stage of the of the um, of the tour, we we do a, a rehearsal beforehand. If we if we'd had a more than a couple of weeks or more than a month or three weeks or something off between yeah. the tours, so um, yeah, so um, most of the like the the the, re- the the arrangements would be um, would be worked out in the rehearsals, and and then maybe. The only thing that was left uh, on the night would be maybe we would be listening for a cue in what Eric was doing as to what was going to happen as to where to end. Yeah, right. Sometimes Eric would go off and play for half an hour or so, Um, and but yeah, but it was uh, it was always always a a, 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 it It was was always organized. Yeah, there was a there was yeah. goalpost to catch and know where you're going yeah. from there. And sometimes Eric, you know, I mean, Eric used to do this one of the songs where he would he would start to the the band would stop and he would start the solo and the band would walk off stage and um and Eric would do this guitar thing for five minutes or so and um, quite often I'd be. I would be caught in the spotlight just because of where he was standing. <laughs> so I was reluctant to sort of walk off because it doesn't look good, you know, when you walk off in a sound check. And in in if you're already in, in the spotlight sort of thing, if you can't sneak off in the dark, then stay where you are, you know. Yeah. I'd quite often stay where I was and and I'd watch Eric and sometimes I'd, I'd think, Jesus, he's going to burst into flames in <laughs> any moment. What he's doing is so... You know, so intense, such such energy and such such intensity. Yeah, fabulous, uh, fabulous um, guitar player and fabulous person too. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So, in terms of then, kind of, there's on your CV there is just an endless list of 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 artists. If I was to throw some names at you, do you reckon you could just see if some of these you feel are kind of worth? any stories of note in kind of a, uh, a, a recording or touring speed round, let's say. So, um, you know, you mentioned Jerry Rafferty, um, Bob Dylan, of course, on the Infidels record. Um, 
anything about that that you think is is worth jumping into? Yeah, so um, with, with Bob, the uh, it was completely different to Dire Straits in so much that Bob's a bit more spontaneous. In fact, he's totally spontaneous. But Mark insisted upon having a rehearsal with Bob. So Bob turned up at um, Mark's uh, house. Mark lived in the village at the time. And um, so we had a, a couple of nights with Bob, a couple of afternoons with Bob, um, going through the material for infidels and um and then mark and i would went off to tour with dire straits we went to japan i think japan and um somewhere uh, yeah we, we had a tour i think it was a promo tour or something to do anyway so we came back and a month later we we we, we went into the power station to record bob uh with infidels and um bob had changed changed probably changed the the chords the words and the melodies <laughs> the songs right to you know i mean to, to a large degree so uh, it was kind of um pretty much uh just kind of learn them there and then you know i mean and some of the songs we were kind of, I was literally jamming, wondering what the next chord was going to be. Wow. Is that, and, and that's his spontaneous creative drive, isn't it? Everything's yeah. catching lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Brilliant though. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I'm a huge fan. Mm. I love his latest record, um, Rough and Rowdy Ways as well. That's fabulous. Oh, Absolutely. So uh, going down this list here, what about um, Bo Diddley? I see that on the list. Bo Diddley just got up with Eric basically a few times. Which was, Buddy uh, Guy the same? Same thing, yeah. yeah. I should say every every uh, every blues hand here is um, sitting in. That's incredible. What about Joan Armour Trading? I did a, f- a couple, at least a couple of albums with Joan. Um, yeah. I can't remember much about them, um, but uh, I remember she has, she has a very nice uh, studio home. It's like a, a bit of a farm complex, and um, she has a studio in there. And uh, yeah, turned up for uh, for two or three days, and um, played on a few tracks of a record. Yeah, of a couple of. Records, I guess. Uh, I can. I'm not sure if I can. I try. I did try to look actually because I'm a big Joan. I'm a trading fan as well. I did try to look into kind of what those ones are, but I couldn't find any um any kind of listing for those ones but um robert cray is here same again robert cray um yeah he he's he turned up he he supported eric quite um a few, oh quite he played a, a lot time. on the journeyman record too i don't know what i'm talking about he played on five or six tracks on journeyman yeah yeah and i think he played with it got up with the dire straits as well he's he's come and gone quite a few times in various scenarios, yeah. These these guitar players, they just they just sniff each other around. They just follow everywhere. Yeah, they follow each other. Stevie Ray, was a, this is a good story. Well, not yeah. not, not such a good story. Stevie Ray uh, supported Dire Straits um, uh, for one part of the Brothers of the Brothers Arms tour, I think it was, and then later um, supported Eric. And of course, 
the night he died was um, he he'd played was was basically I saw his last show, and I was in the helicopter behind his that took off his his took off into the mist and crashed and um, and I watched it disappear into the mist. No way. Mm. Gosh, that that's wow. I was one of the last the last people to see him alive, basically. But the show wow. he played that night was um, extraordinary. It was, he was so he was so good. It was like mind blowingly good. Yeah. Well, I don't know what to say to that. Maybe. Uh, well, let's take a let's take one more break, and then actually, no. Before we go to the break. Um, before we go to the break, I'd love to ask you quickly about the Still Waters album and playing on that Bee Gees record. I was looking up that album today. Um, Alone is kind of um, just just generally why I, I, this record for me is one of those sort of go-to songs for me. You know when you've got those go-to songs for an artist where it may not be the biggest, biggest hit, but it's like this song that has like this special place in your heart and you're kind of like going to it more than the other ones. That for me is kind of Alone. But I was surprised when I was sort of looking through the listings um, once I saw that you played on this record. And it almost feels like the personnel on this record that played across these, what is it, 12 tracks on this um, 1997 Still Waters, the 21st album by the Bee Gees, is like the who's, it's like the heavy hitters of any session guy that's ever played on, on anything. Do you, do you, do you, can you remember the list of guys that played on this? Would you be aware of the other guys that got any other calls during that, that, that album? No, because, because I, I, I played on it as a, as a sort of overdub. I mean, um, Russ Teitelman, the producer, rang me up and invited me across for, uh, for, uh, to New York to, to play on it. And I think I played on two tracks. I can't remember now, but Alone was the, um, was the main one. And, um, yeah. We were kind of got done in in a in a day, so um, or maybe two, and then and we spent the rest of the time wandering around record shops and coming back to the studio and playing them through the <laughs> on the big speakers of the studio. But uh, yeah, it very good. much, yeah, it very much feels like that kind of um, he's gone about and sort of. Uh, I I saw. I saw one credit credit that had, you know, Ralph McDonald just playing tambourine. Like that was the credit on kind of the track. So I imagine it's, you know, who's the guy that I want for this song? Oh, yep. And just like one single call for every song, you know, the list is from Steve Jornard to um, to Michael Foster to to David Page to it's 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 everyone. It's everyone at the time. It's in it's in look it up, it's an insane list. Well, Russ has that. I mean, you're one of them. You don't have to look it up. You're on there, Alan. <laughs> well, interestingly, I, I sort of came, you know, made the record and um, and uh, and some t- at some point after that, maybe a year later, or I can't remember how long it was, I was um, I'd been making a BBC, uh, I'd been the making the music for a BBC um, uh, television series. And I was delivering. I was in a taxi delivering the masters to um, Pinewood or some one of the one of the film studios in, in in England. And in the in the taxi on the way there, I heard alone for the and for the first time since I'd recorded it. Wow! Um, 
and and I, I was totally unaware that it was a massive hit around the world, but not necessarily yeah. so much so in England. Mm. I think it, I think it crept up the charts in England, but I don't think it, it did. Um, I didn't really hear it. I, I, I don't recall hearing it at all, in fact, and, until I heard it in, the, in a taxi on the way on the on the way to Pinewood or wherever I was going, and um, and I thought, Jesus, I'm on this. That's me. Yeah, I remember that part. Did. Do you have any other memories of other songs that you've played on that had that kind of strange, um, they meant something to countries that surprised you that it didn't mean something in other countries? I mean, it's a massive hit everywhere except for possibly one country. Any other songs spring to mind that had that kind of situation? Um No, I remember sitting on a beach in Spain, and this would have been about um, um, yeah, around about the mid nineties, and 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 I and I was sitting waiting for the wind because I'm into, I used to be into windsurfing quite a lot. I was sitting on the, on this beach in the sunshine, waiting for, on the steps of a um, a windsurfing loft, and. Um, and this some, this music came on, and it was somebody. It was this piano part, and I thought, "Hey, that's quite nice." <laughs> and after about a minute, I realised it was me. <laughs> Jeez, that's good. Who's that? Was, Who's he? Was, I'll have to look him up. It was part of the uh, Dire Straits um, on the Night album, which I, right. again I hadn't really, hadn't listened to. I don't think I'd ever listened to it. And it was um, the intro for. Um, Oh, I can't remember the song now, but I just sort of developed this piano part that got got a bit longer and longer as the tour went on. Yeah. Um, well, even if you haven't listened that. to them, we've listened to them enough for you. So, um, <laughs> so, so that that that's absolutely fine. Let's let's take one more quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about the new solo piano record, and then maybe just some general musician things. So, stick around. We'll be right back. Let's let's talk about this record and how this one came about. I was invited to play at the Milan Piano uh, Festival. It's called Piano City, which is held every year for a weekend in June in Milan. Yeah, um, and uh, they invite piano players from all around the world to play in various stages, which are set up around the city. Sometimes it's in a in a hotel. Uh, the main stage is in a kind of a park. And um, so I was invited to play on the main stage. And um, at first I said, no way, you know, I mean, why, why would I want to do that? <laughs> Too much of a challenge, really. And uh, But then I was persuaded uh, to do to do so. And it's, it's organized by uh, one of the organizers is an Italian record company called Ponderosa. And there's a very, very nice guy there work, works uh, for Ponderosa called Alberto Fancini, who um, is ended up be, becoming the producer of the record. So, long story short, he persuaded me to to play on the on the festival, and he persuaded me because the the reaction was quite good. Um, it was an outdoor gig, 
I think I played around about five o'clock in the evening. And it was a, it was unlike the normal temp weather in Milan at that time of the year. It was drizzly and a bit cold. It was yeah. a bit rainy. So by the time I got on the stage, there was um, there was about two hundred people standing around watching. But after about twenty twenty five minutes of me playing, I, I turned around and there was more like two thousand, maybe three thousand people there. They'd all been sort wow. of in the. They'd all been sheltering in the trees because there were like stalls and things beyond the, in in the park, and they'd all sort of milled away. Um, but once they once they heard me playing, they all sort of turned up, and it was quite so quite encouraging. I was quite shocked actually. I turned around and there were lo- loads of people there, so um, that um, that was encouraging for uh, the record company. So they they invited me to make a, an album. Um, which I uh, I said no way, but then I was talked into it by my wife. And um, uh, long story short, she I said, "We need something to put on at dinner parties that you'll listen to. We need something we can play that you know you actually well, won't turn off." Well, that's it. Uh, you see, the, the Alberto and, and the record company say there is a big market out there for for people just playing playing piano, playing tunes on piano. You know, which you don't hear that much really, I guess. So. Um, so that's, well, I've got so a story to tell you off air about that. That's pretty insane, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I made yeah, the record. So, yeah, yeah. And um, sorry, go on. I yeah. interrupted you. Sorry. No, so I made the record at uh, Real World Studios, which is Peter Gabriel's studio down in Wiltshire. I think it is fabulous, beautiful place. And um, I had two Bosendorfers. Peter loaned me his his personal Bosendorfer. So I had two different sizes of grand Bosendorfers to, um, to play on. And, um, wow. It was a challenge and it was, um, one that I kind of, uh, I had to take up basically and, and do, but what, what it is, is it's quite, I'm playing quite, quite straightforward, Playing the tunes um, in a in a uh, tunes that I've been associated with. I mean, Private Dance is a classic example. It, I, I decided I wasn't going to do Private Dancer because I, I couldn't figure out a way to to kind of make it work on solo piano because there's yeah. so many interesting parts in that. The piano part is actually integral to the to the actual track, but it's um, pretty difficult to play the piano part and the melody. And the other bits at the same time, because there are other integral parts too. But um, I figured out a way. There's to, only so uh, many rhythms you can play before the song starts to fall apart, isn't it? Or how do you sort of bed that into one? You're back. You know what you are. You're back to doing orchestral arrangements in two hands again. That's what you're doing, Alan. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, as I said to Alberto, there's a, there's a way. There's a way to play every tune. Um, I, I, yeah. don't, I don't necessarily be in a, be, being able to claim to find that way, but there is a way to play every tune, and. So I, I found I eventually found a way to play Private Dancer. By the way, I'm getting a bit worried about my computer here. I'm down to two percent now, and even though I'm charged because the the battery isn't so great, so we I might lose you. Um, okay, well let me do um, before you go. Um, can I ask you? Do you have any advice for for kind of other piano players or anyone that's that's kind of at a level where they want to do more things like that were done? in the good old days, so to speak. I mean, in terms of rehearsal, in terms of making records, in terms of writing, playing, 
Are there any kind of dot points that you would suggest to someone that kind of really did want to keep this tradition alive of, of, of making, making music and, and making rock records, I guess, or jazz records, you know? Well, my philosophy has always been uh, please myself, make, make myself happy. If I can make myself happy with whatever I'm doing, whether it's playing a concert, whether it's, in other words, in the way that I'm do I'm presenting the music, and 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 the part that I'm playing on the record, if it makes me happy, that's the first thing it has to do. It has to make me happy. Otherwise, if it's not going to make me happy, it's not going to make anybody else happy. Basically, because the the, yeah. the feeling is going to be there. So, it's in, it's it's incredibly important to be to make yourself happy with what you're doing. Uh, and uh, be humble, basically. Well, that's pretty good advice. Thank you so much, Alan, for sharing your time with us today and for for giving us an insight into some of the stuff we may not may not know about these these albums and and your incredible career and um and some of the incredible music that's to come. You know, so thank you so much, genuinely, for for spending time with us today in Ramble City. My pleasure. Take care, everybody. This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers, created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit OFM.com. Ramble City.